Good morning, good afternoon, and good evening, whenever you're listening, and welcome to Tri-State at the Plate. I'm your host, Andy Burdick, joined today by our super producer in between his daddy duties, Jason Ruggiero, and we're also joined today by the big red machine himself, Bob Finkbeiner. Bob, how are you today? I'm great. How are you? Wonderful. Jason, how are we doing? Good, good. Good it's, to be here. It's been a while since we've had the triumvirate together. It's good to have the uh, band back together again. Always I a good don't thing. disagree. Yeah, see, this is this is how you can tell we're just we're just a little out of step because we had that awkward pause. <laughs> we had the awkward pause, and both of you were just waiting to fill in that awkward pause, and then jumped in at the same time. We'll get it going again. Don't worry. We're gonna get the gears greased for all of our listeners today. We'll have this thing hundred percent by the end of this podcast. It'll be an eighty grade podcast today. I promise. I promise. But before we start talking about baseball, guys, we're gonna talk about the Pirates today because it's been a great start to the season. We're gonna talk about the Indians because. You know, you guys like the Indians. And then we're going to talk about the Seawolves. <laughs> Did you like that? Did you like how I threw that in there? You Yeah, sure. Uh-huh. Just, <laughs> just, like, two and one isn't good. You come for the baseball comment. You come for the baseball commentary, but you stay for the witty banter. That's what people love about uh-huh. this. Yeah. <laughs> Before we get to any of that, though, the first thing I want to talk about today is the new slide rule in Major League Baseball, which is being um, not so delicately referred to as the Chase Utley rule. And it's caused some controversy at the beginning of this year. Have you guys seen the the controversial plays that have been uh, stirring up the masses? Yes. Bob, you saw him. I did not see him. So I'm going to say this before I start. Let's just think for a moment about the... Uh the psychological impact, like the, the the home plate rule was called the Buster Posey rule after the person who was injured on the play. Yes. This is called the Chase Utley rule <laughs> after the person who was doing the injuring. He was the bully. Right. Yeah, I think that's because they didn't want to call it the... Uh, uh, who was it? Was it Ruben Tejada? Was that who he slid into? It was. Yeah. Yeah, they didn't want to call it the Ruben Tejada rule because most people would be like, who's Ruben Tejada? <laughs> no, I get that. I'm just saying, like, the psychological impact if you're Chase Utley. Oh, yeah. That's going to haunt you for like, the rest of your life. Like, you know, they're like, you were so uh, cruel to another baseball player that we named a rule after you. <laughs> <laughs> it will probably cause him a lot of mental anguish as he's bathing in his bathtub full of millions of dollars. Yeah, I'm... I don't know Chase Utley, but I'm not sure he's going to be crying about it. <laughs> so if you're not familiar with the Chase Utley rule, Chase Utley uh, slid into, I shouldn't just say slid into, Chase Utley went out of his way to slide into <laughs> last year and snapped his leg like a twig. And this was <laughs> following uh, Chris Coughlin of the Chicago Cubs sliding into the Pirates infielder Jung Ho Gong and fracturing his tibia, as well as, uh, I think, tearing some tendons in his kneecap. So he had a couple pretty gruesome middle infield plays. So in the offseason, Major League Baseball attempted to address this by implementing what is now affectionately referred to as the Chase Utley rule, where you have to, I mean, they have a whole laundry list. You can Google it and see. But basically now there's like nine bullet points about what you need to make sure you're doing when you slide, uh, which all basically come down to, in the, the, the long and short of it, making sure that you're sliding into the bag and not sliding into a person. So this season, we've already had two plays that have involved uh, the Chase Utley rule call. And we had one that was with Jose Bautista sliding uh, into Logan Forsyth. And we had one last night that involved Colby Rasmus sliding into... Uh, who was he sliding into? Someone for the Brewers? Uh, yeah. Was it Jonathan Villar or maybe he's the one throwing the ball second base? I don't remember. Yeah, so Colby Rasmus was sliding into whoever Milwaukee's middle infielder was on the bag at the time. And <clears throat> the rule has not been received that well. So now, Bob, you've seen both of these plays. What's kind of your take on the Chase Utley rule and how the sliding has kind of changed this season or how the rule's being called? <laughs> I'm not sure I really have a stance on it. <clears throat> well, the other way, I mean, Batista. I mean, it's clear to the naked eye that he grabs or attempts to grab a player 
with his hand by his ankle, which is obviously illegal. <laughs> and then, <laughs> as I mentioned before we began the podcast, uh, Harold Reynolds, who I do like and some of you do not like as much, commented about how the rule has been sort of misabused already. And last night's game in Milwaukee and Houston, the double play exchange was in the process, while the throw from second base was never really attempted. And that's the kind of the loophole of the whole rule, I suppose. So basically the middle infielder knew that the slide was not a legal slide. Right. And so instead of attempting to throw the ball to first base, just kind of stopped the play there. because He, he caught knew- the ball and looked at the second base umpire like, yes, yes. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so let me just kind of draw a parallel to this to maybe help put things into perspective because this is... This is exactly what I thought would happen when they implemented this rule. Last Was it last year or two years ago? Whenever they implemented the uh, Buster Posey rule, um, everybody was up in arms. And everybody's saying, oh, you, you can't take the collisions out of home plate, and nobody's going to know how you're supposed to come into home plate anymore. And like, what are we going to do when all these players don't know how to slide, and they're going to hurt themselves more because they don't know how to slide into home plate anymore? And the rules are unclear, and everybody's going to make a bad call. These are, like, everything everybody's grumbling about with the Buster Posey rule. And at the beginning of the year, there were a lot of calls that were not necessarily clear based on what people previously expected out of baseball, right? So it takes a couple weeks. We get some bad calls, yes. But overall, the game is better for it. And now everybody understands, oh, we just have to play baseball the same way that we've been playing baseball since we were six years old and we can't plow the catcher over anymore. And now the catcher, instead of standing right in front of home plate, just stands in front of home plate and swipe tags the way that you swipe tag from little league all the way through collegiate baseball. Um, And I think this will be the same way. Like no other position on the field. Are you allowed to just like run into someone and try and stop them from making a, defensive play like that's that's not the intent of sliding like the intent of sliding is to make sure that you stop and don't go you know over the bag the intent of sliding shouldn't be to stop someone playing defense from making a good defensive play what say you on this jason you've been you've been kind of quiet so i'm kind of curious about your opinions on this no i mean i used to play middle infield so i have no uh love lost for people sliding into my shins with their spikes up <laughs> yeah <laughs> like you shouldn't be um, able to terrorize a middle infielder while he's trying to make a yeah play. yeah i mean you know just i pretty much agree with everything you said you know as far as like sliding into home plate you know running into the catcher and how the catcher's kind of like hanging out there uh you know vulnerable it's like well the middle infielder is really just as vulnerable almost even more so in some ways because they're trying to turn a double play um you know the catcher he's he if he can just get the ball and hold on to it he doesn't have to turn and throw it to someone else while getting run over (laughs) um so yeah i mean uh i'm all for it I, i i agree they probably will screw it up a little in the beginning and and I'm sure players like Bautista who have been kind of, uh, how shall I say, abusing <laughs> their ability to run over middle infielders will uh, maybe have a few lessons to learn along the way. But I don't, it doesn't really bother me at all. You know, and like the Jose Bautista slide, the thing that bothered me about this and the, the parallel I drew with the Jose Bautista slide you know, Jose Bautista slid and literally tried to grab this player's leg as he's sliding. And yeah, and he's, you know, the Blue Jays and Jose Bautista are up in arms and saying like, oh, I can't try and uh, it's a hard play or whatever. The, the parallel I drew to that was when A-Rod was running down the base paths and like swatted his arm at <laughs> whoever's trying yeah. to tag him. You know what I mean? And then he tries to play it off like, what? I can't just run hard down the line. Like, no. No, you can't do yeah. that. And now we have cameras well, on you everywhere to show what you're trying to do. Yeah. And the right call ends up getting made, and it works out okay. That and the fact that, I mean, I can remember plenty of times where I made you know, every effort playing second to basically get the ball and pop away from the bag so as to not get run over. 
but the person still slid into me even though I was a foot off the bag. Right. And I ended up face first in the dirt. Even though I got out of the way. You know, it's like you were you didn't even slide into the bag. You didn't even touch the bag. Yeah, and that so that's not the intent of the slide. I think the rule is a great rule, just like I thought the Buster Posey rule was a great rule. And I think players are going to be in up in arms about it. And, you know, the other thing about players, too, and this is kind of what bothers me, Dallas Keuchel was talking about after the the call last night in the Milwaukee-Houston game. He was saying, are, on Twitter, he said, are we even playing baseball anymore? Unbelievable. And he's saying that because he had a call that went against his team. You know, if it was his, if it was like Jose Altuve that was out there and some guy was sliding into Jose Altuve's legs and potentially taking him out for the season, my guess is Dallas Keuchel would probably be singing a different tune that they were protecting his middle infielder. Well, that was a little bit lenient too, because the other day Correa was in the base base path that Yankees had a game under protest for a while. Right. So, you yeah, know, that, I mean, that kind of nonsense, too, when when fans listen to the baseball players on the teams that are involved, I, I think that's the absolute worst because there is no one that's going to be less dispassionate on the planet than the people that are involved in, you know, the, the situation that's being discussed. So I, I, right. I think we're all in agreement. This rule is a good rule. It's going to be good for baseball. It might have a few lumps along the way. But players are just going to eventually learn, oh, we have to slide like normal people again. We just can't try and take out the middle infielder with a barrel roll or something like that in the middle of the game. No, I think the rule is perfectly fair because it includes a clarification on the neighborhood play as well. Right. So it's like, hey, guess what? You got to touch the bag. Hey, guess what? You can't just go after the middle infielder's legs for the sake of it. You got to touch the, everybody's got to touch the back. Yeah. It's like we're playing baseball by the rules that they were intended to be. Followed. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> I like that. We're all in agreement. Very rarely are all of us in agreement about something. So that's, I feel like today is a, uh, it's a very red, uh, red letter day today. Let's get out the ticker tape parade. Yeah. It might be kind of cold in the snow, but let's do it. Yeah. By the way, do you remember a couple weeks ago when I said the snow was probably done? Definitely yeah, not. Th- definitely not. Thank- thanks for that. <laughs> All right. Let's talk about some Pirates baseball. You guys ready to do this? We're going down a deep rabbit hole of four games. Yeah. Go ahead. Go ahead. All I right. want to hear your take on it. All right. Here we go. So first thing I want to talk about today, because this is brand spanking news since the last time we recorded. Um, Jeff Passan first reported that the Pirates and Gregory Polanco had agreed to a five-year contract extension. And when I saw that, it was like like 10, 15 at night. Like I was just getting ready to wind down and, and go to bed, and this pops up on Twitter, and I just lost my mind. I Suddenly I couldn't – I was not tired anymore. I was prancing around my living room, fist pumping, because we locked up our third cornerstone outfielder to a uh, – I, I don't – I'm hesitant to call it team-friendly, but to a – reasonably cost-effective contract, I guess. Um, so, and, and I guess I'll kind of talk about that in a minute. But for right now, the, the deal's rumored, or well, the deal isn't rumored, it's been confirmed since then. Um, but the, the deal is uh, for $35 million over five years. And then there's two team options. Um, it's looking like at the end of the contract. So this is how the contract breaks, breaks down, basically. Uh, it doesn't start until next season, so we still have, you know, his pre-arb salary this year. And then 2017, we start out at uh, $1 million next year, $3.5 million in 2018, $5.5 million in 2019, $8 million in 2020, $11 million in 2021, and $12.5 million in 2022. Now, the 2022 is a club option. So the team gets to exercise that option if they want it. Um, there's a $3.5 million buyout if they decide not to to exercise the option. And then 2023, there's another option uh, for $13.5 million with a $1 million buyout. So basically, this contract has the potential to buy out three free agent seasons. So we took, all, we took care of all of his arbitration years and then potentially three years into free agency. Um, it, it's sounding like it could be worth 
upwards of $60 million if he hits certain escalators that are in the contract as well. Um, I haven't seen any specifics on what the escalators would be, but you would presume it'd be all-star appearances, MVP votes, things like that. Um, so what, what say you guys about this deal? How do you guys feel about these pre-arbitration deals that teams sign, like uh, Pirates signing Gregory Polanco before they really need to? Bob, you can go first. <clears throat> Obviously, I like it a lot. It reminds me of the mid-'90s Indians, Indians teams that had a lot of success doing the same thing. Uh, as a secondary Pirates fan, uh, it's nice to see him locked in this long-term deal. Like, they're a piece, and the dominoes has fallen, and now eventually he gets our way back to a uh, long-term contract of McCutcheon, eventually. That's my question is, uh, you know, it's a good deal as far as buying out Polanco, trying to lock in some cost certainty. But, you know, we all know that the Pirates, just like the Indians, only have a certain amount of money that they realistically can spend. So did the Pirates just choose future Polanco over future McCutcheon? You know, you guys know that my next level conspiracy about Andrew McCutcheon (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and I I really think that this is that kind of way of Pittsburgh saying we're ready to move forward whenever we need to. Yeah. Um, I, I firmly believe that because as much as Kutch is, Andrew McCutcheon is uh, Pittsburgh's Derek Jeter. Like they haven't had a player like Andrew McCutcheon since Barry Bonds. And then Barry Bonds left Pittsburgh and became you know, the, the player that he was and obviously not revered by, uh, pirates fans. So, (laughs) so we have, you know, we have Kutch through 2018. So we have two more years with Kutch. Um, it's, and Pittsburgh's really good with these contracts. I have to say 2018 is a club option too. Um, so 2018 Kutch has $14.75 million club option, um, that the team gets to exercise. But so you look after that, Kutch is going to be what? 30, one, I think he'll be 31 after that contract, going on 32. Um, if there's a team that's willing to pay him $25 million a year, Pittsburgh's not going to do that for a 32-year-old outfielder. They're just, like, I I would be, it would be the most shocking thing I've seen since the Neil Huntington era started if they locked up Andrew McCutcheon to a deal where he's making $20 million a year after his, you know, age 32 season. I just, so I, I think that is kind of their way of saying Look, we're we're getting all of our ducks in the road long term. We have guys down on the farm, Austin Meadows, Harold Ramirez, guys that we look at that we think we could plug into the outfield and get production from. And I think this is that first step forward uh, with that Polanco contract, definitely. the The thing now, the thing I wanted to kind of touch on, and I, I mentioned it earlier. I'm hesitant to say that this is a good deal for the club. While it could be a good deal for the club, and I think this is what everybody thinks when these players sign these deals, it seems like a good deal for the club because it's not a lot of money relative to what we're used to baseball players making. But Gregory Polanco still holds like a career 251 batting average, you know, throughout all of his major league seasons. Um, he's exactly. Never, he's never had that huge power spike that everybody's wanting. Um, he plays good defense. And he, you know, runs the base as well, but he still makes a lot of mental errors on the base paths. And, um, you know, he does get thrown out, you know, when he's trying to steal a, a decent clip. So while there's room for growth for Polanco, Pittsburgh's also kind of betting on that he shows that growth over the duration of this contract to make it uh, a good deal for the club. Um, and you've seen, you know, like the the Tampa Bay Rays kind of learned this with Evan Longoria. When Evan Longoria, he actually signed those two, um, you know, he signed the pre-arbitration uh, contract, basically, I think, before he played a game in Tampa. Um, and then they re-upped him again before he became a free agent at the end of that contract. And it looked like a great deal for the Rays. And then Evan Longoria's power dropped, and he just hasn't been the same kind of player that he was before he signed that that contract. And, you know, it's still like an okay deal for the club, and Longoria is still the face of the franchise, but he never turned into that thirty consistent 30 home run driving in 100 you know, runners every year kind of guy that, that they were hoping he was when he signed that deal. So I think there is definitely risk on both ends. 
Oh, it's a gamble. I mean, you can't give someone that young that much guaranteed. I know it's not guaranteed, but, you know, <laughs> you can't lock in with someone like that um, when they're so young and have so little proven um, skills at a major league level and not have your own set of risks. You know, I mean, <laughs> Gregory Polanco really isn't taking much of a risk there. <laughs> You know, the Pirates are actually taking on a lot of risk. Yeah, yeah, I would definitely agree with that sentiment because, <laughs> and I mean, for, uh, particularly for the arbitration years, you know, you, you you look at the arbitration years and he's probably throughout those arbitration years going to make about what he would make anyways. But you look at those, last, those last couple years at the end, that's where, <laughs> yeah, things, the, but, and I will say on Pittsburgh's behalf, I guess, the smart thing that they do is they make sure that they get those club options at the end. So if it ends up Polanco's production isn't what you would expect a twelve and a half million dollar player to make, you know, right. they, they could cut ties and walk away and come out a little bruised, but not worse for the wear. Right, right. So I, I like the Polanco contract um, overall. And I, I personally feel like Polanco is going to be a, a, a great player, so I think it's a great deal for the team, or it will prove to be a great deal for the team in the long run. But there's definitely that risk there, uh, absolutely. All right, so let's talk about something that's been near and dear to my heart. We, You guys have heard me talk about this on the podcast for a long, long time. But it's looking like the Pittsburgh Pirates are the new sabermetric darlings in baseball. The way that they are constructing their lineups, and they started in spring training kind of giving you flashes of how they wanted to put their lineups together, but they're pretty dedicated to this to this um, proposition of batting John Jaso leadoff, for example. And you would look at John Jaso and traditional baseball fans and even some traditional baseball pundits, they don't get you know on-base percentage and the value of on-base percentage. And... They're hitting the the Buccos have been hitting John Jay so leadoff with Kutch in the two hole, and so far, you know, to start the year, Freeze has been in the three hole with Marte batting cleanup, and I have to say the results through four games have been pretty favorable. I don't know how much you guys uh, have seen of the Pirates, but the the lineups are looking good and the Pirates are are putting runs on the board for sure. I've actually seen more of the Pirates than the Indians because the Indians have A, had a bunch of postponements, and B, kind of playing these goofy 6 p.m. starts. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, I kept noticing uh, Jaso batting leadoff, um, we had, and we had talked about that. I was more surprised about David Freese hitting third than, than anything else, but uh, so far, so good, I guess. Yeah, we'll I mean... See, you know, I guess it's one of those questions. Uh, it's easy for Clint Hurdle to do it when they're scoring runs, right? Mm -hmm. um, does he stick with it when, you know, uh, it hits the skids for a couple weeks? That's the real question, right? Like yeah. what I'm saying is the Pirates beat reporters aren't going to be beating up Clint Hurdle for batting Jaso leadoff when things are going well. Right. But when you get shut out or score one run like three nights in a row. With the Padres. Then that, yeah. <laughs> then that narrative is going to change a little bit. Yeah, I mean, through so through, you know, our first uh, four games of the season, Jaso has a, I think like an on-base percentage, right around 300. You know, is, um, you know, like not a great batting average. I think he's hitting like 200 or somewhere thereabouts. But, um, you know, he's... I think eventually at the end it's going to prove, you know, he's that 361 career on base guy. Like he's going to walk a little more. Um, you're going to see that on base percentage, you know, kind of spike through the roof once he starts getting more of those walks. And, um, you know, again, and, and we've kind of beat this drum or I have at least specifically for years, you know, it, it was tough to watch Andrew McCutcheon hitting third with guys like Josh Harrison or Gregory Polanco ahead of him. And their on-base percentages are sitting around, like, 300. You know, Josh Harrison will hit, like, 280, which, you know, batting average looks really appealing. You're like, oh, a 280 hitter, that's great. But when your on-base percentage is only, like, 310... <laughs> yeah. Like, that's that's tough for Kutch because, you know, like... And, again, I'll reference the book by Tom Tango. Like he says, a lot of times you're going to get that third 
spot in your order to come up with two outs and nobody on, and then your best hitter is going to be out of luck. So I love the lineup construction. I, I think it's it's brilliant what they're doing. I think over the course of the season it should um, prove out to be the uh, the smart move for the club overall. Um, one of the, the big things I want to talk about other than the uh, slide rule that's changed this year, have you guys seen the uh, mound visit clocks? Yeah. Yep. What's uh? What do we think about mound visit clocks, Bob? Well, I kind of like them. Do you like mound visit clocks? You're a fan, huh? I, if it, anything that can help speed the game up a little bit, you know, compared yeah. to watching Steve Traxel take Ugh. five seconds, then a mound visit, another thirty-five seconds, another forty-five seconds, then a step off, then a throw over. And basically, you could have gone off of your seat to the bathroom, got a beer, and sat back down, and still he would not throw a pitch yet. <laughs> I have to say this, and Andy, you'll probably experience this shortly. Trying to get a two-year-old interested in watching baseball, you start to realize how slow it really does move. Right. Because he is interested when the pitcher pitches and the batter swings and the runners run. <laughs> <laughs> But the endless stepping on and off, out of the box, back into the box, readjusting the batting gloves, he's like, no, what? I no, no, thank you. <laughs> you know, and so like the mound visit clock, it's like, what, what do you, what do you have to say? You know, get out here, say it, go back to the dugout, let's play some baseball here. Yep, keep moving. To me, it feels like. And I mean, I guess I understand speeding up the game. To me, though, it feels like when you were a kid and your parents would threaten you to like, hey, you got to get in the car. You have 10 seconds to get in the car. And then they start counting down. <laughs> and then you know what every yeah. kid does when your parent counts down? You just kind of slow down your pace a little bit. And you walk towards the car just a little <laughs> slower until they get down to like three, two. Well, and then you like hurry up and scurry into the car. And I feel like here, that's kind of what the... the pitching coaches are doing as they're going out to the mound and that might be but i mean look at it this way what other sport i mean a mound visit is essentially a timeout right yeah what other sport has unlimited untimed timeouts that's a valid point yeah that's a, i mean that's like a good point. i you know i used to coach basketball yes exactly what you just described happens the, the horn sounds, the timeout's over, the coach is still talking, the players are moving out toward the court, they're still talking, still talking, <laughs> then the ref comes over, stands next to you, still talking, <laughs> and then finally, the coach like gently shoves the players out on the court, like, oh, it wasn't me, it wasn't me, they wanted to stay, it wasn't me. <laughs> right? I mean, that's what happens, we all see it happen, but it's not like, you know, the human rain delay, Oh, Grover. Going out. Oh, <laughs> exactly, right? Going out all the time, the slow walk while the two guys get loose in the bullpen. And, you know, then you talk and talk and talk, and the umpire walks slowly out, and you talk and talk. Then you walk slowly back to the dugout. <laughs> and they throw a couple pitches, and the guy goes back out and does it all over again. <laughs> so I guess I do... I, I hadn't really thought about that until you brought that up, but I do like the sentiment of, you know, what what do you have to say? How long do you need to say it when you're a pitching coach? That I yeah. I guess I had put things in that context, um, and and I guess in that context that does kind of make sense as far as having that pitching clock out there. Um, I guess, yeah, I don't know. I think you kind of changed my opinion on that, Jason. I think I kind of um, like it more now. Now this is yeah. a banner day. Yeah, all right. Thank you. Yeah, I don't know. At first, I was not like I wasn't a fan of it because I guess I didn't really think about, you know, I wasn't. It it seemed to me more like Major League Baseball was saying, "You coaches need to hurry up," and the coaches were just kind of thumbing their nose at it. But the more that I think about it, thumbing your nose at it is kind of like the childish thing to do. Like now you know you have thirty seconds, so if you have more stuff to say, I guess yeah. hurry up and get out there. Yeah, right. I mean, uh, that's like, like the thumbing your nose at it. The gently is like kind of the time honored tradition of the timeout in every other sport. Right. Yeah. Where like, the, like I said, the coach is like walking the players back out to the free throw line with the clipboard. 
Hey, this is the thing that we all agree on again. Oh, wow, yeah. All right, we're doing all right today. I like the, uh, I'm, I'm feeling the good vibes today. So, uh, mountain clock visits, I kind of changed my opinion on them. I actually wrote down right. in my notes that I thought they were an epic fail. But <laughs> I now, see that, yeah. Now I, uh, I might pay a little more attention the next time they go out to the mountain and see, see if that changes my opinion. All right, are you guys ready to talk about the greatest thing about this early season? Well, I was going to say, this next thing are you on ready? your agenda is <laughs> are you ready? pretty out there. Are you ready? Juan Nicasio, Cy Young Award winner. I'm calling it right now. It's happening. My fantasy baseball team's very happy. <laughs> That's the most Yinzer thing I could think to say right now. Because I guarantee there were like half the city of Pittsburgh was in their basement watching that Pirates game, just shouting the same thing at the at the uh, TV screen. Yinzers, if you were in Pittsburgh watching that Juan Nicasio start, tell me how much did you think si, uh, Juan Nicasio was going to win the Cy Young after that start? Tweet at us. Let us know. Uh, oh, my goodness. But uh, Nicasio started against the Cardinals the other night through uh, – 84 pitches across six innings. Um, 59 of his pitches were strikes. It was basically an extension of his spring training. You know, usually you hear people say like, oh, don't pay too much attention to spring training. And for Juan Nicasio, that was probably good advice because he'd struck out like 24 batters in 15 innings. They were 15 shutout innings. And you're like, well, this guy can't keep that up forever. And he came out against the Cardinals and he was dealing um, his fastball is averaging 95 miles an hour. Um, out of um, out of all of his pitches, he threw 50 fastballs, um, 29 sliders, and he even mixed in. And this was the thing that we talked about last podcast when we talked about Juan Nicasio. He mixed in five changeups, so about six percent of his pitches were changeups, um, which is really what I'm going to be paying attention to as the season progresses. Because last year. You know, when he was coming and starting a few games and primarily relieving, he only threw uh, a changeup about 1% of the time. And I think that's the thing you're going to see Ray Searage really working on with him is when we got to get you through that lineup multiple times, we need you to have that third pitch that we can use. Um, you know, in, in all seriousness, you know, I like to joke around about Juan Nicasio winning the Cy Young, but he did look great. I mean, he looked like... <laughs> He looked like a guy that belongs in a major league rotation and not just like at the back end of a rotation, but as a guy who, you know, could be like top two, three starter in a rotation. Um, I don't know if you guys saw the start or anything. Any thoughts that you have about Juan Nicasio and the race here witchcraft that's going on in Pittsburgh again? It's well, early. Yeah, it's early. I watched <laughs> the start. I was impressed, too. I wanted to go back to the changeup idea. I was listening to you guys debate that third pitch and the importance of having one, especially as, as a guy out of rotation. You know, in 2011, for the Rockies, basically his first time up in the in the bigs, he threw his change up. I just had it here. 10.7% of the time. So it made me wonder, was his change up just not developed enough to be effective? And as they went along, is they were able to improve upon that pitch and now maybe you know uncle ray's working that back into the repertoire of pitches yeah i mean well you know when he was coming out of the bullpen for the dodgers you know you don't need that third pitch you don't have to yep. rely on it um and i but will say back, though you know but going back to his first time up in the pros though he was using it you know 10 11 percent of the time right yeah yeah that would be it would be interesting to kind of talk to him and ask him you know, over those next couple of years, because it did, you know, his slider usage dropped every single year after 2011. Um, like, I, I would be interested to know why he cut back on the usage of the, the changeup. Um, mm -hmm. And my guess is there's probably, you know, correlation doesn't necessarily equal causation, but there probably is so, some kind of correlation between his effectiveness and his decreased use in the changeup. I mean, it's all kind of muddled because he was pitching his first four years with the Rockies. So, right. you know, pitching's just kind of a crapshoot in general there. Um, but <clears throat> just by looking at it and seeing what Pittsburgh has done and understanding the players that Pittsburgh targets, when I look at what Juan Nicasio brings to the rubber every time he steps on the mound, I can't help but look at that and see that 95-mile-an-hour fastball with life you know, a, a biting slider. And then thinking about him being able to develop that changeup as another weapon, 
And like, why can't he be AJ Burnett? You know, why, why couldn't he turn into that kind of guy that, you know, could slot in right behind Garrett Cole in that rotation and give you those effective innings with a pretty decent K rate. Um, I mean, I mean, I think that's a reasonable thing to, to at least be kind of projecting at this point because of what Pittsburgh has done and their track record at working with pitchers and understanding how to make adjustments to their deliveries or to their pitch repertoire. Now I know Jason, you it's, it is like, it's super early in the season. Absolutely. But yeah, I mean, do you factor, do you factor all of that stuff in there? Oh, I think, I mean, my delicate way of looking at it would be like, how, how did you phrase that? There's no, there's no reason why he can't turn into AJ Burnett. Is that what you said? Yeah. Mm-hmm. I agree. There's no reason he can't. There's a lot of reasons he couldn't. Do you see what I'm trying to say? Yeah. Like, oh, yeah. Absolutely. He's not AJ Burnett, obviously. He's maybe has the skill set to turn into that, but he's got a lot of uh, uh, consistency and control and repeatability that he has to work on in order to get to that point. Doesn't mean he can't, but right now he doesn't have that track record of an AJ Burnett where you just, you know, I mean, that's what separates those pitchers. There's guys in every, you know, team's bullpen that if they could control that third pitch and if they could repeat their delivery and be more consistent and if, and if, and if, but they just don't. Right. Yeah. That doesn't mean that he can't. I mean, you know, we had that discussion about Carlos Carrasco where in many ways he was in that same position where he had electric stuff, but he had a whole bunch of problems and can, in as far as consistency and repeatability and control and a third pitch. And then they put him in the bullpen and he started to figure things out. And, you know, now he looks like a totally different person, but I mean, it's possible, but it's also April. I mean, I didn't even know the name of this guy. You said hit a home run off Jeremy Hazelbaker. What is this like? (laughs) I mean, Juan Nicasio throws a great game only to give up a home run to Jeremy Hazelbaker. It sounds like a triple A summary. Right. <laughs> I mean, you know what you know what I'm saying though? Oh yeah. It's like uh Well, do you know what I like the most about Juan Nicasio's start? And aside from the changeup, this was what I was I was paying really close attention to how many batters he walked. And he walked no batters. His walk rate for the year after one start is 0%. And, and that's the thing. If that can continue, that's a huge step, obviously. Right. Because, I, you know, I we talked about his 12.3% walk rate. Like, that's that's not going to cut it. <laughs> you know, like... Yeah, right. Right. I mean, 12% walk rate, then this is all kind of smoke and mirrors, you know. Um, but lowering the walk rate controlling the change up and being more consistent. Okay. Then yeah, you might have something on your hands then. Now <clears throat> kind of piggybacking off of Juan Nicasio's Cy Young talk is, uh, <laughs> don't say that <laughs> is, uh, yeah, I'm just, I'm just say it all year. All is year. Is Juan Nicasio going to be this year's version of Stetson, Stetson Alley for you? <laughs> I, yeah, I gotta, uh... I, I still have to get Jason. A, uh, well, I still have to get Silas, a Stetson Alley. Uh, t-shirt and maybe oh. i'll get a juan nicasio one for good measure yeah okay jersey <laughs> um but piggybacking off juan nicasio's cy young hopes uh ray searage was on uh 93.7 the other day talking to joe starkey of starkey and miller and i you know for whatever for whatever reason it's interesting when fans of certain franchises mobilize about specific topics but for whatever reason on twitter Suddenly, people had been talking about how this is the last year on Ray Searidge's contract with the Pirates, which had not been a concern of anybody all last year when they knew that after last year he would be going into his last year. It wasn't a concern all spring, but for whatever reason, on just like a random Wednesday during the beginning of the season, Pittsburgh fans mobilized and were tweeting all about how this is Ray Searidge's last year. 
on his contract. And so when Searage was on uh, 93.7 The Fan talking to, to Starkey, he said, I'm going to be a pirate, and the pirates have always taken care of me. I don't foresee anything changing. Now, it must have uh, relieved Pirates fans to hear that, because I'm sure, like the talk am- amongst the the general public, the general population of baseball fans would be, oh, it's his last year, you know, Jeff Bannister's left, you know, he's got a job managing somewhere, like, why would Ray Searage do that? Um, and I know Cleveland's kind of experienced that with Mickey Calloway as well. Um, so what, what's your guys' kind of thought on contract talks with, you know, coaches specifically, you know, like pitching coaches, things like that? Yeah, I mean, uh, there was kind of this old guard of pitching coaches that seemed like they were happy being pitching coaches. <laughs> like, um, oh, uh, the Braves' old pitching coach. What was his Leo name? Leo Mazzoni. There you go. Um, yeah, Mel Falamar, the Cardinals. Right, exactly. Uh, oh, um, Dave Duncan, Duncan, you know. Those guys seem to be like, I'm a really good pitching coach, and I'm just happy being a really good pitching coach. But it seems like now we kind of live in fear of our pitching coaches being poached away from us. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, I mean, you know, I, I I guess I can kind of see that, you know, because personally it is something I wonder about with Mickey Calloway. Like, does he want to be Dave Duncan, or does he want to – turn into you know a a regular uh, manager so i guess uh you know if you can keep drinking uncle ray's bucko blonde ale (laughs) wizardry then uh that's great for pittsburgh absolutely what do you think bob oh i agree with everything jason said i think there's a big difference now those those guys like mazone duncan i think they're more tied hand in hand with the manager of the ball club too. I'm guessing yeah. they probably had great respect for one another and probably enjoyed the autonomy provided by the manager to the pitching coach. And then obviously they had success. So it just reinforces the relationship. But I think in this day and age, especially with analytics, that if you find someone that is able to tap into a resource, perhaps that's not being, you know, used as much to benefit the performance, they're going to be a wanted commodity. Yeah, so I mean, I guess as a Pirates fan, it was definitely reassuring to hear Ray Searge say that. You know, it sounds like he wants to, he's planning on staying in Pittsburgh long term. So definitely good right. news for the Pirates. Uh, better news for the Pirates fans. All of you can rest easy. Ray Searge sounds like he's uh, sticking around in town. Um, just a couple things I want to talk about before we transition to the Tribe. Um, the Pirates started a series against the Reds uh, last night. It was a really exciting game. It was one of the more enjoyable games uh, I've watched from Pittsburgh uh, in a while because they you know, were down. It was a good game kind of back and forth a little bit. And then uh, with the bases loaded and a three-run deficit in the eighth inning, Starling Marte came up and hit his first career grand slam off uh, Reds reliever J.J. Hoover. Um, it was a really just fun, exciting game to watch. Melanson, uh, well, Feliz came in after that, uh, shut down the eighth inning, and Melanson came in to, to save the game at the end. Uh, really enjoyable game. Uh, the Pirates face off against the Reds today, and actually it's notable at 1 o'clock because Garrett Cole will be making his first start of the 2016 season. So, uh, Buckos fans, make sure you tune in today to keep an eye on uh, Garrett Cole and make sure that his, was it oblique or whatever it was that was dogging him this spring, uh, make sure that he's feeling healthy. All right, you guys ready to talk some Trab? Sure. Oh, yeah. All right, who's leading off for the Trab today? Jason. Well, Bob, Bob went to opening day. Want me to go first? That's all right. Well, I can discuss my experience real fast in that. Yeah. So, you know, I'm on my way there. I had a nice little lunch and listened to the fans discussing the expectations for the tribe this season and their talk about oh, the weather issues and how it's cold in Cleveland, but nothing new to people in the area. And I'm ready to turn in and pay my three hours to park, which is outrageous. And all of a sudden, on the fan, I say, well, that's interesting. Today's game has been postponed to tomorrow. So I quickly reared back into the lane and drove across the bridge to Great Lakes Brewing Company. <laughs> <laughs> and I was up with a bunch of other Cleveland fans that were not very happy that the opening day game got postponed to tomorrow. Or yeah. Tuesday, I should say. Yeah. And then, so... You were 
Were you able to go to the game on Tuesday? I had a case of baseball spring fever. Uh huh. So I was able to go. Yeah, for those who were unable to go, I believe they could exchange for two games. Yes. Two games. Uh, trying to, you know, and you know, Antonetti had a whole big spiel about that, and I'm sure he didn't want to cancel opening day, so uh, <laughs> we won't belabor their decision to cancel it, and they trying to make it uh, right for those that couldn't come down with a case of spring fever there, but. Uh, <laughs> When when finally got down to baseball, it was still awful cold, and um, Corey Kluber kind of pitched like he was awful cold, and uh, it probably wasn't that fun of a game, was it, Bob? Uh, Outcome-wise, not so much. I did enjoy the <laughs> second round of renovations to the, the ballpark. Yeah. They were, they were nice. I would say I agree with you. Kluber did not look like he was comfortable. At the same time, David Price looked like he was perfectly fine with pitching in the bowl. <laughs> yeah. I think afterwards, uh, a reporter asked Corey Kluber, how do you think you pitched today? And Kluber, <laughs> Kluber who we all know, is like a very uh, serious kind of person, shot back, how do you think I pitched? <laughs> <laughs> And that was the end of that conversation. <laughs> Next question. <laughs> Next question. Um, yeah, it didn't didn't go so well for the Indians on opening day. Um, and, and one of the strange things kind of that happened opening day, we discussed a little bit, was they were down by, what, two runs in the ninth inning, and they decided to use Trevor Bauer? Yes. And his first relief appearance of the season – and, uh, you know, it's four to two at that point. It's at least uh, reasonable that the Indians are still in the game. And then uh, Big Poppy <laughs> blasted a two run shot uh, to the right field bleachers. And so that wasn't exactly, I think, what anybody's vi- version or vision of opening day looked like. <laughs> um, and, and Bob, you kind of expressed. Not confusion, but uh, curiosity, I guess. That's about w- yeah, why they decided to use Trevor Bauer there. Um, and we kind of said that maybe it was a little bit of a test. You know, like uh, we got a two-run lead here, kid. I don't really want to use Zach McAllister to protect a two-run lead or a two-run deficit, rather. In the ninth inning, this I mean, that's when, I guess, right? You should be going to those other guys in the pen and trying to figure out who you can trust a little bit. Right. And uh, that day, Trevor Bauer didn't show you could trust him at all. But last <laughs> um, night, though. Last night, he went two innings and gave up no runs mm-hmm. and was actually kind of a machine, right? Six up yeah. and six down. Because there was even a thought for a minute that Trevor Bauer might go out for the old-fashioned three-inning save last night. Because <laughs> uh, he had just burned through two innings with no trouble at all. And uh, they decided to give the ball to Dan Otero, which uh, that's who you use when you're up, what was it, 7-1. to one. <laughs> You go to Dan Otero to finish out the game. Uh, that, I mean, that's one of the kind of interesting storylines to me is watching Trevor Bauer. Um, didn't go so well the first time. Went really well last night. Uh, he's very open that he's not happy to be in the bullpen, but that he's going to do what he's told to do and, and you know, keep saying all the things. What's best of, for the team. Well, yeah, what's best for the team, and I'm going to go out and – and, and get guys out no matter when they put me in the game. But everybody knows he's not happy. Um, so it'll be interesting to see, A, how does he respond kind of emotionally, and then B, how does he respond as far as what we all know are Trevor Bauer's problems, <laughs> i.e. walks <laughs> and pitch selection. Um and that's what Francona's quote last night was. Trevor did a really good job 
really just two innings of really pounding the zone, he really threw the ball well. So that's Francona saying, like, yep, you throw strikes, get people out, big surprise. Um, the Indians have had kind of a weird week where, you know, opening day gets postponed, then they had one game, then the third game of that Red Sox series was postponed, and then they played last night in Chicago. And last night in Chicago, it was snowing, like, the whole game. It was like a blizzard. <laughs> yeah. And... um and what was it? The second game of the season was snowing too, right? They've had snow every game, I think. I believe so. <laughs> because the second game is the game where um, Jose Ramirez was playing left and Naquin was playing center, and there was yeah. a ball hit in the gap that somebody should have caught, and they both come running toward one another and then just stop, and the ball lands between them. Mm-hmm. And um, they both basically said they just never saw it. Um, there's a great quote from Naquin where he says, um, it was rainy and windy at that moment. I even asked Jose if he saw it, and he said, me no see. <laughs> and I said, me neither, bud. <laughs> so, you know, there was kind of this, like, is that a guy, two guys who have played all of, like, uh, you know, Six, I think uh, Jordan Bastian had it. 16 combined innings in the outfield at that point between the two of them. <laughs> <laughs> Coupled with the fact that it was uh, snowing at the time. And, you know, you're going to get moments like that. Um, now, the Indians have been using Jose Ramirez kind of like a little utility knife to start the year, right? He's been kind of bouncing around left field. So they started him in the outfield a little bit this year and then... Uh, last night, they brought him in to play third base, right? When they switched out. Didn't they switch out Uribe late in the game, maybe? That sounds right. It and then Naquin came in. Yeah. Yeah, and that's what you're going to see. Uh, I mean, if you go to the um, Indians depth chart, Jose Ramirez is like the backup at pretty much every position other than first catcher. <laughs> And that's really not that much of a uh, hyperbole. Jose Ramirez is going to be playing in a lot of left field, at least until Michael Brantley gets back. Mm-hmm. And um, he made a snow cone catch to, <laughs> uh, to end the game, the second game of the season, uh, and get Cody Allen the save. They were up by one run against the Red Sox, and it was Allen versus David Ortiz. And Ortiz drove one right to the wall, and Jose Ramirez took the worst route to the ball. (laughs) Turned right, turned back, was backpedaling, then turned the other way. Dead sprint back over his shoulder, catches the ball. He slams into the wall. Ball comes up, up to the snow cone, and like a true middle infielder, his other hand was coming up and smashes it back down into his glove. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, he comes out, you know, arms up. And if you watch the clip where you can see Cody Allen, he about has a heart attack as he's watching Jose Ramirez do a dance routine in left field. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, he's athletic enough that he can do stuff like that. And I think that, not even that catch as far as, like, getting all turned around and still making the catch. I really do think Mike Avila just doesn't even make that catch. Like he doesn't get back on that ball well enough. So this isn't like Mike Avila playing left field. You know, uh, you got a guy that's a lot or Luis Valbuena. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Um, yeah, it was going to be interesting to watch, though. Interesting to watch how much Naquin plays, how much Davis plays. We're kind of starting to see how they're shaking this out a little bit. Um, Rajay Davis had a, a ball, was it yesterday, Bob, where he almost got Oh, yeah, it was awful. He came in on by the snow. Yeah, he came charging in. It was like a baseball coach that we all you know, have, been, have been in the past. The guy comes charging in thinking, oh, gosh, no. And then he just like plants like a football player and then sp- sprints backwards and eventually leaps and dives and catches it. But it's like, oh, <laughs> almost giving me a heart attack though. 
making that play yeah. a lot more exciting than it needed to be. Yes. Yeah. Uh, the radio broadcast on that one, uh, Jim Rosenhouse is like something, you know, bald hit to deep center field. Uh Oh, <laughs> Davis <laughs> is in trouble. And then he gets, he got turned around and then, you know, Oh, he dives and makes the catch and blah, blah, blah. And it's like, Oh my God. <laughs> yeah. But again, you're playing in like, blizzard-like conditions almost right i mean the snow is just coming down you know you're, you're gonna have a hard time seeing the ball um so the, the the thing that i've been most interested in is two things one Corey kluber and carlos carrasco have not pitched well <laughs> danny salazar pitched well last night but we've kind of had this yeah we've kind of had this flip where other than opening day where Cleveland press was kind of saying like, Oh, Indians can't score. Offense sucks. And it's like, well, 34 degrees scoring two runs against David price is actually a pretty decent showing. (laughs) The problem is we gave up like seven runs, you know, but the pitching has kind of been a little rough, but the offense has been not so bad. You Mm -hmm. know, we've seen, we've seen like a nice Rajay Davis triple, We've seen the quote-unquote professional at-bats from guys like Bird and Uribe, you know, just getting sack flies and chipping away, you know, not trying to hit a four-run home run every time they step up to the plate. I don't know. What's your opinion, Bob? I agree with you. I think that a little disappointing inconsistency displayed by Kluber and Krasko, but I'm not worried about them. It's good to see Salazar sort of off strong. But I'm like you. I'm impressed yeah. with the offense. The offense to me seems like they're they are in a much better place this year compared to last year for sure. Yeah, and kind of to that point, and then we've been talking quite a bit today, so maybe this will be kind of the end of it. But uh, there's a nice article about Napoli and Santana um, hitting back to back in the Indians' order. Through the first two games, Napoli and Santana have combined to see 85 pitches. That's <laughs> nuts. Yeah. <laughs> so they've been to the plate 16 times and seen 85 pitches, an average of 5.3 pitches per appearance. So you got these two guys back to back. And that's, you know, that's a little taxing on the opposing <laughs> opposing pitcher. <laughs> so it'll be interesting to see, because those two guys especially have come out of the gates pretty well. Napoli didn't look so great opening day, but, um, you know, but he was being patient and working the count. He just, he ended three at bats and called third strikes. So obviously he was not seeing things the same way as the home plate umpire. Um but if those guys can continue to drive in runs and work the count and, and uh, you know, kind of be a force in that middle of the order, then this offense might actually look pretty good. Yeah, and it is worth noting, Carlos Santana is up to his old tricks again. Uh, we have three <laughs> games played, two walks already this season. So, And no strikeouts. Took, no strikeouts. And, Bob, did you see what he did on um, – the second game of the season, he took a ball the opposite way. Yes. yes. Did you hear that, Andy? It's a. I'm telling <laughs> you, it's a special day on this podcast. <laughs> we got Carlos, every, everybody's agreeing about everything. Carlos Santana's driving the ball the other way. And you know what his quote was? I don't have it exactly, but to paraphrase, it was basically like, "Yeah, sometimes you need to take a different approach." Ah, good for you, buddy. Pedro Alvarez was, never figured that out. So <laughs> I was like, good for who you. Is this? Who is this? I respect that. All right. So uh, good news. That's a very high note to end on. If that is indeed where we are ending. Is there anything else we need to include about the tribe? No, I think oh, that's good. Right. Real briefly, like I mentioned before, uh, former Indian first round draft choice from Vanderbilt University in 2004, Jeremy Sowers. Made the news the other day. He got a baseball, got his MBA from UNC, the Tar Heels, and then he has since latched on to the Tampa Bay Rays in their advanced scouting and instant replay processes. 
Oh, wow. Yeah. And I looked up Jeremy Sowers. His apex was when he went back-to-back complete game shutouts in 2006, maybe? Yeah, six is rookie year. Yeah. He was 7-4 and four that year with like a 3-something ERA. That's quite the uh, that's quite the peak. I mean, if that's if that's the extent of your major league career and you throw back to back shutouts, yeah, I'd, I'd feel good about that. I'd feel all right. Good on you, Jeremy Sowers. Welcome back to baseball. <laughs> all right. So last thing I want to talk about, uh, quick Seawolf shout out because we have the minor league baseball season officially underway as well. A um, couple players to pay attention to on the Seawolves. We've talked about before how Detroit's farm system is thin, but. Uh, <laughs> A few players of note in Double uh, A Erie. Um, the Seawolves have infielder Jacoby Jones, who is currently suspended for 50 games for testing positive for a drug of abuse. Which is a totally different topic altogether that we could probably spend a whole hour talking about. Um, but Jacoby Jones was a former Pirates prospect. He came over last year in the Joaquin Soria deal, so he'll be after he's done serving his 50 game suspension, presumably um, back in Erie. Uh, 2013 second round pick, lefty pitcher Kevin Zemeck. Um, he's a decent prospect. He looks to be like a back end of the rotation starter. He has uh, an above average fastball, but um, what many in the industry consider an average slider and a fringy curve. And some fan favorites, Mean Dean Green, back in town again for another year in Erie, as well as uh, Jason Krizan. Uh They'll be returning to the Seawolves. Uh, the Seawolves started their season defeating the Trenton Thunder 7 to nothing to open the year as Corey Riordan threw four shutout innings, um, only surrendered two hits, gave up two walks. The pen kept the shutout intact for the entire game. Uh, infielder Alberto Gonzalez went four for five with two doubles during the game. They lost the second game of the series 7 to four, so they square off against Trenton again today for the third of a four-game series, and that game will start at 5 o'clock. Um, I don't know, do you guys have the uh, minor league baseball app? I do not. I do. So, Bob, when you bought your uh, MLB season ticket, did you or, or MLB TV, did you get the minor league package with it or no? No, for some reason, when I bought MLB TV a while back, I got the MILB TV one separate and been paying for them separately since. Yeah, this year they ran a they ran a special this year. It was if you got your MLB TV, the minor league package was like twenty five bucks, I think it was. So I ended up throwing that on this year uh, because I'm not going to be able to go to as many Seawolves games with our little uh, bun in the oven getting ready to, to show up here. So I figure while I'm up with these uh, late night feedings, I'll be able to flip the Seawolves on and uh, watch them uh, play from the comfort of my home. But there you uh, go. yeah, so yeah, adapt or die, I guess. Um, last yep. thing, former Erie Seawolf Stephen Moya homered twice. And drove in five runs on opening day for the Toledo Mudhens. <laughs> I'm so in love with Steven Moya. I want him to be good so badly because he was so amazing and eerie. I know he strikes out way too much. Way too much. And I know that's probably going to kill his professional career, but I love Steven Moya. The raw power there is just... I get drunk on his raw power in the swing. It's it's beautiful. He's one of those guys that like a scout would love. Yeah. Because he's... He's one of those guys, like, when my father-in-law saw him, he was like, holy cow, <laughs> oh, look at that kid, you know? And yeah. that's, like, everyone's reaction to him. <laughs> and But it's, like, exactly, you know, the trap that, like, scouts can fall into, where you're just like, look at him, holy crow, forget about the strikeouts. Right. So what if he strikes out? He can hit the ball out of the ballpark. Oh, and then you get Pedro Alvarez. Amazing. It's like he, I mean, he's gigantic. He is. He's he is a man, man. He's like six foot yeah. seven. He's oh, gigantic. He's he looks like a giant out there. Um, and when you catch, and when you catch him on a night where he's better than the pitcher. Yep. And he's just barreling up the ball every time. You're like, this kid's gonna be an all star, right? <laughs> and then you catch him on a night when he's facing, you know, like a first round draft pick pitcher, who's got like the really good off speed offerings, right? <laughs> then you're like, ooh, <laughs> you're over four with four strikeouts. Not a good night tonight. Like, Never mind. <laughs> hey, we should mention before we go that the Sea Wolves and Erie Vents announced a lease extension. 
did. Yeah, and that was uh, 2020. Eventually, we're going to be talking to Greg Coleman. We had our interview scheduled for this week, and that was the last thing I was going to bring up. And uh, he ended up, he had uh, some projects that he needed to finish up um, before they get ready for their uh, home opener coming up this week. So as soon as we have a chance to sit down with Greg Coleman, we'll be talking to him about um, the new lease that they've signed. Um, along with, you know, quite a bit other that, that goes into our interview. And it's always one of the, one of my favorite, uh, podcasts of the year is getting to sit down and talk to Greg. So keep, definitely keep your ear to the ground, um, for that podcast coming up, hopefully within the next, uh, few days. All right, gentlemen, I think that's going to wrap us up today. Yep. Yep. All right. We'd like to again, thank our listeners and ask if you're listening to us on iTunes, that you give us a rate and review. Our listeners have been awesome with the rates and reviews lately. So we definitely appreciate them. Thank you so much for those. Uh, we've been recording weekly, so we should be talking to you again next week at some point. But in the meantime, if you want to check us out on the web, you can do so at www.tsmbaseball.com. You can email us, tristatebb at tsmbaseball.com. You can follow us on the Twitter, at tristatebb. And you can check us out on Facebook at facebook.com backslash tsmbaseball. So, for Bob Finkbeiner and Jason Ruggiero, this is Andy Burdick, and we look forward to talking to you soon. All right. Oh, boy, I hope this works. It says it's recording, so we should have a file by the time we're done.